The day is hot, out in the grassveld of South Africa. In the middle distance, the carcass of an impala, having fallen short of the harsh tests of life in the wild, awaits an ultimate end. The savannah awaits its scavengers. Arguably the ultimate scavengers here, eating huge amounts of carrion, are the vultures. As a group of birds descends from the azure blue skies above and begin to feed, it looks like it's anyone's game. A free-for-all as everyone gets stuck in, pulling away meat from the bone at an insatiable pace. But there's someone missing. These vultures, white-backed and hooded perhaps, are the early birds. Slowly circling above, dropping height as he goes, is an enormous bird dubbed the king of the African vultures. As he comes in close, he finally drops the landing gear with white leggings bright in the sunlight, a clear warning to his smaller fellow scavengers that he's inbound and expects a meal. Make way for the king. This huge bird is a lappet-faced vulture, one of the biggest species of vulture in the world, with a wingspan of over 2.5 metres, and they weigh in at around 7 kilos. Despite their impressive build, they're a species in desperate need of our support. Hello, I'm Tom Morath. I'm the Deputy Head of Living Collection at the Hawk Conservancy Trust, and whether it be kites or kestrels, harriers or hawks, I've a passion for birds of prey and understanding their place in our natural world. Our podcast, Nature's a Hoot, is a way to delve deeper into the world of these winged predators, to understand their natural history, their current status in the wild, and what we can do to support them through conservation efforts into the future. This month, as we join with collections and organisations around the world by taking part in International Vulture Awareness Day on the 2nd of September, I'm very proud to be presenting our plans to support an incredible vulture who's classified as endangered in the wild, having experienced severe declines in recent years. Lappet face vultures are striking birds. Perhaps the same can be said for any vulture. But for this one, their plumage is a deep chocolate brown, save for light-coloured legs that look almost like glowing white bloomers. At a distance, the lappet-faced vulture appears completely bald, and their faces are bright pink-coloured as they blush in the heat. In reality, like most vultures, their heads are not bald at all, and they're covered in a fine coating of feathers that are easy to keep clean after feeding. Which, as you can imagine, is a messy affair. Perhaps most striking is the beak. Like bolt croppers, this bird's bill is adapted to crush and tear, allowing access to the toughest meat with ease. I wanted to find out more about this species and the threats they're facing and also the support that the Hawk Conservancy Trust is planning to provide. Dr Campbell-Mern, 
Head of Conservation and Research here at the Hawk Conservancy Trust. Thank you so much for joining us again. Mm. For someone who's never seen a lappet face vulture before, how would you describe one? Just amazing, really. That's my first word that awe-inspiring is the word that, well, I know that's hyphenated, Tom, but um, amazing, really. The first time you see a lappet face vulture in the flesh, it's it's such an imposing bird and it, the way it dominates the, sa- the landscape wherever it is the way they fly, the way they approach a carcass, the way they interact with other vultures, just amazing and very impressive. One of the things I like about lappet-faced vultures is they don't do anything in a hurry. So if you imagine the scene, you've got a carcass and you've got all these white-backed vultures squabbling over it, little hooded vultures hanging around the edge. Lappet-faced vultures are almost always late. They almost always turn up last. And they probably, I think, turn up because there's other vultures there. So Often what you'll see is as the all the white backs are sort of scrabbling around the carcass and whatever, the, the lappets will just be circling slowly overhead. And they're like it's like watching a barn door flying over your head. But then they have this added thing where they, they stick their legs out and they circle with their legs out straight and they have these really bright white pantaloons along their legs. And it's this really strong contrast between black and white which in the animal kingdom is often seen as a you know that high level of contrast is sometimes perceived as a threat or some other some other method of communication and they it's almost like they're advertising they circle slowly and slowly come down with their legs stuck out as if to say right oh here i come and they come in and they can clear 5 10 15 even 20 whitebacks from a carcass in one whoosh and they come in and they're the pictures that you see with their bright red face their massive beak open and their their big wings and just dominating these other vultures so it's it's really impressive and then having done that and cleared all these vultures away and they're standing on the carcass they're just as likely to go oh there's another leopard face vulture over there i'll go and i'll go and do some head turning with them for a bit the word lappet is used to describe a decorative flap of material on a garment, perhaps a headdress. It's fitting, then, that this vulture should be known by this name given the many folds of skin around its face. The lappet-faced vulture can also boast the largest wingspan of any vulture in Africa, perfect for soaring high up on thermals in order to survey a huge area of open grassland and semi-desert for food. These birds use their size to push others away from the food that they found, bullying smaller vultures and even some mammalian scavengers in order to have free access to the food. But despite their strong personality, the lappet-faced vulture is very much under threat, and they're currently considered as an endangered species owing to the fast rate of decline in what is already a small population. I asked Campbell to tell us more about how and where we're monitoring these birds. Well, we focus on lappets amongst others because, like all African vultures, there they've got a very poor conservation status, so they're they're listed as endangered and probably on the threshold for being critically endangered, but they're listed currently as endangered and. You know, when we first started monitoring vultures in or working with vultures, none of them was listed as critically endangered. And it was it's been a change in their conservation status that's been very obvious in the last few years. So 
we only knew that that was happening and we only knew that these birds were at such high risk because we were monitoring. Our work at the Trust specifically is focused in, in Kruger National Park in South Africa. We've been monitoring lappets there for about 15 years now and their numbers are the number of nesting well the number of nests for lappet faced vultures in Kruger is has decreased quite significantly and we'll talk about that later possible reasons why but yeah so that's the negative trend for lappets in Kruger and we're we're investigating a new field site in Angola on the other side of southern african continental area you can't walk from one pair to another. Well, you can, but it just take a long time. Uh, but leopard face vultures seem to have this, like a lot of large birds of prey, they seem to have alternate nests fairly close to each other. So my hunch is, and I think you could probably demonstrate it, is that if they have a failed breeding attempt in one tree, they probably move to a nearby tree and make a new nest. Um and if they've successful, they probably go back to the same nest. So lappets might have two, sometimes three nests within a few hundred meters of each other. They'd probably be closer, but the trees that they use, that they prefer to use, are there's not many of them in the landscape. And so part of the problem is if they lose one of those trees, if it gets knocked over for whatever reason or burnt, there aren't many other trees that they like to use nearby and they nest in these very open areas where there's just the odd tree here and there. Um, so they don't have a lot of choice, really. Kruger itself is about 20,000 square kilometres, so it's about the size of Wales. We monitor intensively in, in two main zones within Kruger, and that's by helicopter. So that's a survey method because it's really difficult and expensive and time-consuming to survey the whole of Kruger from the air. We take these sample areas... We take a high density area and a low density area and monitor that exhaustively from a helicopter. And then we extrapolate to the park as a whole to make an estimate for how many nests there are. And we've calibrated that method and it's it's quite reliable. So that's why we keep doing it. The nest itself is quite big, but the trees are quite small. So it's almost like looking at a bullseye from the air. Uh, they have a very... Uh, quite a big nest cup I suppose of, of around about um, probably about a meter a, a, a full-sized nest is big enough for two adults they often sleep in their nest and there's big scaredy cats so if you're on foot and you approach like white-headed vultures if you approach the nest and they see you they'll pancake in the nest so that nest is big enough for two big lapid face vultures to lay down flat and you can't see them. Um, and then outside that nest area, you could call it a nest cup, but it's a lot bigger than a cup, nest bowl. You have a, a an outer edge where the birds often sit and preen or head turn or interact and cast or poo over the side of the nest, squirt over the side of the nest. So, so diameter of a nest is you know sometimes two and a half meters or so it's really quite big vultures are the most threatened group of birds on our planet today with 70 percent of all vulture species classified as vulnerable endangered or critically endangered the hawk conservancy trust undertakes conservation and research projects to support some of those most endangered species in africa and asia 
One threat that seems to face all species is the threat of poisoning, either deliberate or accidental. If you want to know more about that, then look up our earlier episode all about vultures. But one threat faced by the lappet-faced vulture has taken us all by surprise. We did quite a lot of intensive ground monitoring in addition to the aerial surveys. And over a period of about eight years, around about a quarter of the lappet-faced vulture nests that were being monitored got pushed over by elephants. And we you know, didn't really understand why, because the elephants, there wasn't any evidence that the elephants were using the tree, like eating it, eating the branches, eating the bark, eating the roots, nothing. They literally appeared to be walking up to the tree, pushing it over and walking away. This behaviour hasn't been recorded, so all, we, all we're working on is the circumstance or the post-event evidence. So we get back to the nest tree and think, oh, well, this was an active nest a few months ago and look, it's been pushed over. So don't understand why and trying to understand the behaviour because in this instance, we need to understand the behaviour of the elephants so we can hopefully introduce some deterrence and stop the elephants from doing it. I've got some theories and that's part of what I do is get theories in my head or ideas in my head and then I go and test them. You know, whether that's on vultures in Africa or whether it's here in the UK, whether some of our other projects, it all starts with a, that's interesting, I wonder why that's happening type thought process. And and so, yeah, that's where it is with the lapids. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, my theory, my main theory is that the elephants don't like the nests. They don't like the smell. And if that's the case, that's potentially valuable so we can develop a deterrent. But elephants are very uh, forceful animals. And once they've decided something, it's very difficult to stop them. Uh, so, yeah, so I need to test that. If that's actually the case, if I can record behaviour of the elephants interacting with, a, with an active nest, watch the behaviour. And I've got some nest cameras or monitoring cameras looking at the nests. Then that gives us a clue about what we can do next. Campbell and his team in the conservation and research department here are dedicated to understanding as much as we can about the species, ultimately enabling us to put in place solid plans for their conservation. For now, at least, the best course of action for lappet-faced vultures is unclear, and more understanding is first required, as Campbell explains. It's difficult because there are so many threats and the trajectory for so many species. And we've, we've been involved with some work looking at a broader range of raptor species in Africa and many of them, yeah, their trajectory is downwards. But for vultures, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to find a positive story for vultures in Africa because Africa is a continent that's under a lot of pressure. Uh, poisoning is is widespread in many, many parts and yeah, it's it's a it's a pressure situation. So, um, but yeah, I think that the positive stories come from the the number of people that in, yeah, vultures. When I first was interested in vultures, there was probably half a dozen people <laughs> in, interested in vultures in Africa. I'm exaggerating, but it seems like now that many countries, many more countries in Africa, have people who have put their hand up and are working on vultures, either completely or as a major component of their work. And through the tracking studies that have been done over the last 10 years or more, 15 years, we're really beginning to understand the international nature of vultures in Africa. 
And what that led to is, is this multi-species action plan for vultures in Africa, Eurasia. So that gives us a roadmap. So I think the tools are there. The people are growing in number in terms of who are focusing on vultures. It doesn't take away the threats, but I think there's a much more momentum towards vulture conservation now than there was even five years ago. It's great to know that so many people are wanting to get involved with vulture conservation like this. Um, is there anything about the species that you'd like people to know that you think we've not mentioned yet? I think the species, you know, there's this, this ongoing, I know I call it an ongoing myth, that lapid-faced vultures had this enormous beak. It's part of their imposing. And when you see a lapid-faced vulture, you just think, good grief, look at the size of the beak. And there's been this, I know I call it a myth, it's a bush myth, like an urban myth, but in the bush. And the, the lapid-faced vulture is the can opener of the vulture world. And we've all heard this. And frankly, I think it's ridiculous because if you've spent any time looking at vultures in the wild, lapids almost always are late to the carcass when the feast is already, they'll turn up when there's a few skin and bones left and that's about it. They rarely come to a carcass first. And the whole idea that, and it's preposterous to think about this group of whitebacks hanging around next to a dead zebra that's just died of old age, right? And all these whitebacks going, geez, I wish the lapids had turned up and opened this thing. I'm starving. I just can't, you know, you can see how ridiculous it is. And they even lapids, as big and powerful as they are, there's some skins that they can't tear. They could probably get through a small antelope skin if they really wanted to. But almost all vultures rely on terrestrial scavengers to open up carcasses, things like hyenas or jackals even. So so that's, yeah, I just think that's a myth that we could do without. And lapids are special for their own reasons. And it's not because, and it smacks of altruism, like the lapids <laughs> cruising around, yeah, oh, there's some like... whitebacks I can go and help. <laughs> Let's open the carcass for them. You can see how ridiculous that is, right? So yeah, I can. It's just absolutely. <laughs> so anyway, I'd like to do everything I can to quash that myth. So clearly, this is a very exciting species to be working with, and we hope that through our work, people get inspired to want to try and support our work. What's the best way for anybody listening to to get involved and help us? Yeah, the average person living here in the UK or listeners who might be in, in somewhere in Europe or whatever, it's really difficult to get involved with the animals themselves. And so the traditional and I think the best route for people who want to support the animals that they like and if it's vultures, support the organisations that that work directly with those birds or that species. So if you really like lions, there are organisations that are working with lions that you can support. If you really like vultures, and that's what we're talking about today, then it's organisations like the Trust that you know need their support to keep carrying on that work. But for the average person to, even in the UK, somebody who loves kestrels, for example, in the UK, it's difficult to actually help kestrels unless you support through an organisation like us that's working on kestrels. So that's the best way to help. And, I, okay, there is an element of um, make a donation, there's, there's my support, I'm done, and I've done my job. In the absence of any other easy way for people to help these species in the wild, that's that's the best way, really. 
by coming to visit us, becoming a member, or by simply sharing this podcast with friends, you can be a part of spreading the message about the conservation work we undertake and ultimately support the work we do with some of the most endangered species of birds of prey on our planet today. Our promise is that we will never stop looking for ways to help birds of prey in the wild. This time, we've no regular feature, as Campbell has already played our game. But I ask you, dear listener, the same question. Why don't you let us know, if you were a bird of prey, what sort of bird of prey would you be, and why? You can send us an email here, podcast at hawkconservancy.org, or send us a message on social media. We'd love to hear what bird of prey you'd like to be, and your reasons behind choosing that bird. I happen to be among the lucky few who have had the chance to see a lappet-faced vulture in the wild, whilst monitoring their critically endangered relatives, the whiteback vultures, in southern Africa. What struck me was the sheer size difference between the two species when they stood side by side on the ground beside a carcass. The lappet-faced vulture is an enormous bird, and it's easy to see how they might dominate a carcass and push all other scavengers to the outer edges whilst they take their fill. It's certainly an encounter that I'll never forget. A bird of this size, scavenging from large carcasses, is vital to a properly functioning ecosystem. And it's hard to see how other wildlife might thrive in the future if they're to disappear entirely. It's a future that we, at the Hawk Conservancy Trust, must dare to imagine, but do all we can do to prevent. I'd like to thank my colleague, Dr Campbell Mern, for his support in putting this episode together. If you'd like to support the new work we're doing with lappet-faced vultures in the wild, donations can be made online and are very gratefully received. Similarly, if you want to find out more about our conservation work in general, there's loads more information on our website, hawk-conservancy.org. Plenty more bird of prey content can also be found on our social media pages, You'll find us on Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. If you enjoyed this episode, share it. Please subscribe and perhaps consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts.